Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, my ride or die and I here have uh, off, off mic agreed there is only there is one and only one way to introduce today's episode, and that's this. Shakespeare riots. Riots! <laughs> that's as far as we got with the song, right? Throw a chair up on the stage. The Shakespeare riot. Ryan, <laughs> uh, uh, this is, I don't know. I got nothing. Uh, what, what is it? Well, so this is a, let's see. Um, it, it, it's over the bard war I wage. Nope. Nothing. Not good. Not good. We'll, we'll, we'll look at the, we'll look at the lyrics and spend some time, or maybe you can help us out with this. Uh, we're looking for Zoot Suit Riot written as Shakespeare Riot and We'd love to hear your take on the lyrics uh, anywhere on the internet, Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians. Uh, maybe we can come up with some of our own off air. How will I write this parody song? You may be asking yourself. Well, it's very simple. You'll learn all you need in today's episode. Well, and the good news is I've already set the bar remarkably low with my ham-fisted attempt uh, at this. But, you know, I was really, uh, it was just right off the cuff. I didn't even think about this band. You threw that. You surprised me with this cherry popping daddy's ref. So uh, please, <laughs> ridiculous historians, do us a solid and make us proud. Write, write this song. It needs to exist. Uh, Weird Al hasn't done it. Who else is going to? I don't know. It could be you. But it's true. Today we're talking about a no-joke riot. Like, you know, practically burning things to the ground. I think there is an attempted arson at some point in this story. And it's all around. It's like in that time of New York City history. Kind of like Gangs of New York era. 
if I'm not mistaken, with like the Bowery Boys and all of that stuff. Actually, that might be later. Forget I said anything about Gangs of New York. But it is sort of still that frontier kind of like, you know, mentality of like, you know, there's the 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 very highfalutin old money types, which are pretty much British <laughs> transplants who, who still are quite rich. And then there's like the new middle class and then there's like the lower class. And a lot of that stuff, those crowds come together in entertainment. That's where the, the, the haves and the have-nots kind of meet. It's Taylor's oldest time. We see it uh, throughout history. And America wasn't so much known as being like a like a, a theater place. It was very much a British thing. And obviously Shakespeare is the most famous British, you know, arguably. Now, I think pretty much unquestionably the most famous British playwright of all time. And this was now starting to, you know, show up in the States. Uh, but there still wasn't like a famous British equivalent to like the the great British actors, you know. Mm. Uh, and this story is kind of about that American equivalent and the uh, the the Hufflepuff. That's not the right word. The hubba. That's a good word. <laughs> the, the, the brouhaha. The, the brouhaha that those uh, that those clashing factions uh, created mm. when you know people were were feeling like maybe this uh, this gentleman was too lowbrow to tread the boards. Right, right. And this is uh, this is where, of course, we point out uh, the notable absence of our super producer Casey Pegram. <laughs> who is still so upset by this historical event that he uh, he wasn't able to make it to the recording today. Uh, we're with you, Casey, uh, and <laughs> we'll, you'll be you're joining us in spirit, but we understand how, how you're still still a little sore about about the issue. His very sensibilities of all that is good were so shaken that he had to take a take a sick day. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's the ticket. That's the theater ticket. You're you're right, Noel. And I love the way that you have set uh, out the stage for our story today. You see, one of the biggest incidents of public outrage and pandemonium in the entire history of the Big Apple was really a fight about theater uh, and we're going to learn how a tremendously difficult feud between two actors led to uh, widespread chaos. So let's introduce our two principal actors for this story, who are also actors themselves. There's England's William McCready, and from the U.S., there's Edwin Forrest. Now, both of these guys were already big deals. They were professional actors. They were in their glory days. They had each toured the other's country mm -hmm. in various productions, mm -hmm. and they were known on both sides of the pond. But McReady sort of represented that old school idea of Shakespearean or British actors. Forrest was a young gun. In every sense of the word, he was 13 years younger than William, and he also represented this sort of this sort of new school of actors who came from a an American background. Yeah, that's right. It, it's like you think of oh, what's that Saturday Night Live sketch where it's, is it Mike Myers who does the whole acting that that thing? John yeah. Lovitz. John Lovitz acting. That's right. And yeah, it, it's definitely like. 
that that tradition of very large kind of uh, you know almost scenery chewing kind of attitude of, of that kind of Shakespearean acting where it's all about big performances because as we know you know stage acting requires big performances otherwise those uh, gestures and glances and looks and, and nuances that might be easier to to see on a screen with a zoomed in camera you can't do that on 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 a on a stage when you're maybe you know hundred feet away in the cheap seats or, or more even. Um, so you really got to kind of like sell it. Um, and that is what MacReady represented, the traditional style of Great Britain and classical British theater. Uh, Forrest, who was much younger, um, was he brought a different kind of bravado to the stage. Uh, it's possible that I'm overstating the bigness of British acting because it was possibly of the two, the more nuanced, um, but it had a little bit more of an effet quality to it, a little bit more of a daintiness and delicate nature. And this forest guy was all, you know, piss and vinegar and bigness and machismo. Uh, and American audiences flipped for this guy. First of all, because he was one of their own, you know, mm-hmm. given those British uh, conquerors what for, uh, you know, in, in, in the, the theater, theatrical sense. Um, but he had really started to develop kind of a distinct cultural identity for American theater that was different from that British school. And I would argue, well, first off, I have rarely been a professional actor in my life. I mainly did uh, sketch comedy and a couple few series pieces, but I would argue that this difference exists in a form today. Uh, Very quickly, for instance, imagine some of the most famous American actors, uh, people like Al Pacino. That's always going to be seen as Al Pacino on camera, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. it's less chameleon-like. There's something to be said, uh, and, and I'm not sure how to phrase it, there's something to be said to the idea that European actors are often lauded for their ability to become subsumed in a role, right. while many U.S. actors are lauded for their ability to kind of always be themselves. Hey, it's me, Robert De Niro, Bobby De Niro. I'm playing a French duke in this movie, but this is still how I do, you know? Mm-hmm. Or Keanu Reeves, uh, may science and the gods bless him. Uh, he seems like such a great guy, but man, if you rewatch. Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, which I thoroughly enjoy. Yeah. Uh, that accent, that accent is tough. I know where the bastard sleeps. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? He never got cast in a role like that ever again. And I would argue that Keanu Reeves is a secret weapon, a magic bullet when used properly. Uh, and I think I saw an article, not to get too off topic, about how he is sort of one of the most underappreciated actors in American uh, cinema. And that's largely because people just think he's a dummy and he doesn't yeah. really know what he's doing. But yet, yeah. why? Why is he so beloved? It's not just coincidence. It's not just because he's cute. There's there's something to Keanu Reeves. He brings a kindness and a sort of empathy to his roles. Uh, and I think that really translates. And that's why he's such a big deal. And I think that all, all of the actors we have mentioned thus far and many that we haven't mentioned thus far are in their own way profoundly talented. You know, I, I, I think it's I think it's kind of lazy for people to just heap opprobrium on an actor. There's there's usually going to be a reason that they're in so many films, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, professionals assessed their abilities and found them more than adequate. So kudos to you all. It is tremendously difficult work to be a working actor. And 
You live and die by the fans, right? That's true for any entertainment. That's true for uh, K-pop and groups like BTS. Uh, that's true for sports teams and more. These actors each had their own fan clubs and they were like soccer hooligan level or football hooligan level opposed to each other. That's right. The, the wealthy, upper class, Anglophiles in England and in the U.S., they were McCready people. Mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the working class, the folks who were like, yeah, I like theater. What, does that surprise you? I can't like theater. I work, you know, at the docks and I go see Macbeth. What's wrong with that? This is America, baby. Those folks like Forrest. Well, if I'm not mistaken, Ben, I mean, this is also pre what we might consider some of the more base, lowbrow types, forms of entertainment uh, in the States. Things like uh, cabaret or things like vaudeville, you know, like so at the time, the reason there was such a clash between these two classes was because this was really the only game in town was this kind of classical theater. You know, like I don't know that I mean, I'm sure there were some other things that were approaching what I'm talking about, but it certainly wasn't that golden era yet, where there were like a much more of a body type of crowd that maybe the highbrows wouldn't go to. They were occupying the same theaters, checking out the same uh, performances that were largely classical works, not classical at the time, but things by Shakespeare, maybe even Greek theater or Rome, what, what have you. So there was definitely this interesting opportunity for culture clash to take place. And boy, do we have a good one coming. But real quick, let's just a little further sum up kind of these individual actors style. William Charles McCready was known uh, for that kind of more fay, a fet kind of handkerchief waving, as is how Smithsonian Magazine refers to it, um, in his portrayal of Hamlet. And he was a beloved portrayer of Hamlet. That was one of his most famous roles. Uh, Forrest, on the other hand, like we said, took it a, with a little bit more of a blunt instrument approach. Yeah, and Forrest was more of uh, the Shakespearean protagonist as action hero. You know what I mean? There you go. This guy was here to uh, kick ass and spit quatrains. And, <laughs> and I, I have no idea if that's correct. But <laughs> here's, here's the thing. They also became symbols, as we've sort of been foreshadowing, of anti-English and pro-English sentiment. We have to remember, this was like just maybe two generations after the Revolutionary War. That means it was still a hot topic. So even the word English was considered to uh, kind of a, a sideways dig against the, uh, the wealthy mm -hmm. in the U.S. and what we're seeing is their British sympathies. Uh, Shakespeare, oddly enough, escaped this anti-English sentiment Americans loved Shakespeare. They loved the stories. They loved the writing. They just wanted no part of what they saw as the foreign stage direction. They were like, yeah, Forrest, this guy, this bust heads and take names approach to British protagonists. That's what we need, not this uptight formality. And while that might seem weird, we have to remember this was pre-internet. This was pre-telephone, pre-television. So traveling performers were often seen as representatives of their own countries, whether they liked it or not. So when a lot of people would see McReady, they would think, okay, this is what every single British person is like. 
how interesting is that, Ben? It sort of goes to what I was talking about earlier, that maybe it had to do with just a lack of options. But, you know, now we think of Shakespeare as something that you learn in college. And, you know, we might occasionally get like a Baz Luhrmann adaptation of one that's got like boobs and, you know, violence and, and, and chopping heads and things like that. So there's definitely still a little bit of that populist sentiment around Shakespeare, but much less so. There's an article on the Santa Fe New Mexicans website that kind of uh, tells the story of this rivalry that uh, categorizes it like this. Uh, Prospectors and trappers recited Shakespeare around campfires, reading from battered volumes carried in their packs or cobbling together heartfelt pastiches from memory. Um, Really fascinating. This really was kind of the people's, he was the people's bard, you know? Right. Yeah. Voice of the people. And so let's, let's dive into how McReady and Forrest became such, uh, such bitter pills toward one another. It all started years back. McReady had toured the United States and Forrest more or less emulated him. He performed the same roles that McReady was known for at different theaters across the country. And the public loved this idea of dueling actors. There's almost like a WWE vibe here because... (laughs) There was this transatlantic rivalry supporting the one actor or another in a role became kind of a, a statement of one's sentiments regarding the transatlantic rivalry at large. And so when Forrest went to England, the crowds came out. There were butts in the seats, there were groundlings in the groundling area. And when he came back, to England later in the mid-1840s for a second tour. You can read a great article about this on ThoughtCo. The crowds were sparse. Did Forrest blame his performance? Did he blame the source material or did he blame the production team? No, he blamed McReady. That son of a fish, he said. I was sabotaged. Yeah, I was I was sabotaged. And so he physically showed up at a performance that McReady was involved in and started heckling him from the audience like, hiss, boo. You know, it's funny. I, I, I read another article about this or I think I watched, no, I know what it was. There's this guy I've been really enjoying on, on uh, YouTube. He goes by the history guy and he does these kind of short little uh you know quick blasts through like interesting little history stories and we've we've referenced him a few times on the show but he talks about how these guys kind of knew each other or they had at least crossed paths and they were friendly to a point uh, and first. then thing yeah and then things got nasty but you gotta wonder you know uh, it's like these hip-hop beefs we see today you gotta wonder if there's calculation behind them sometimes where it's sort of like hey no no press is bad press maybe if we drum up some kind of like rivalry it'll uh it'll you know it'll up our returns on both ends um doesn't seem like that was the case here because there was actual loss of money happening um, because it was like, okay, you're going to, you're going to cause me to not have as many people come to the show. I'm going to show up and hiss from, from the box seats. Uh, and that really um, set things on a collision course for disaster. Mm-hmm. And we know this is the case uh, <laughs> because, okay. So the, this is when the rivalry begins. So Forrest shows up in Edinburgh when McReady is performing Hamlet, as you guessed it, Hamlet. And oddly enough, theater was much more interactive at this level than is maybe considered to be today because 
it wasn't uncommon for a spectator to heckle. And McReady may have gone on and just taken that in stride, his bruised ego aside, but he recognized that it was Forrest. And then Forrest went in and wrote a letter to the London Times where he defended his behavior. He said it was, quote, a salutary and wholesome corrective to the abuses of the stage. The truth is, Mr. McReady thought fit to introduce a fancy dance into his performance of Hamlet, (laughs) which I thought, and still think, a desecration of the scene, and at which I evinced that disapprobation. What is a a fancy dance? Like a little... Uh, like a little jig, like, what do we, like, like yeah, waltz, I, don't know. I got it. Meander. I got it. I maybe got it. it's worked. Who knows? Who knows? That that would be a first. And then McCready, uh, you know, in 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 true dandy British fashion, made a very snippy entry in his diary where he commented on the affair as such. I do not think that such an action as a parallel in all theatrical history, the low-minded ruffian. Perfect. I think he's referring. He's referring to uh, Forrest there as a low. That is them's fighting words. Low-minded ruffian in those days might as well be you know a serious effing and jeffing kind of slur. Mm-hmm. And notice how that that plays into the British stereotypes of knuckleheaded residents of the U.S. And it's weird because in Europe. McReady is very well established. He has the infrastructure. He has the PR. They're on his side. And his supporters worked assiduously to ensure that Forrest's performances didn't get a lot of coverage in the press. So he wasn't getting the headlines and the ink that he wanted. And this sabotaged his, uh, his obsession, one that should be familiar to many actors in the audience today, global fame. And then Forrest, in return, made it difficult for Reedy to play in the States. There was a performance McReady had in Cincinnati, and the patrons, the audience members, the secret Forest fans, intentionally went there to try and sabotage the production. They threw half a dead sheep onto the stage. And these guys kept like snipping each other back and forth in the press. So to your point, Noel, I don't know how sincere they I think the two actors were sincere but I am sure there were promoters and so on who were fanning the flames because they realized it was good publicity and this back and forth in the press these kind of little digs uh just went on and on and on and uh really began to just kind of deepen those resentments on both sides of the divide like we said the anglophile halves you know in the McCready camp and the more working class you know um football hooligan types, not to oversimplify, um, in the Forrester camp. And it all was heading to uh, a a battleground situation um, where things would ultimately kind of boil over in a pretty remarkable fashion. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com.
Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. We have our characters, we have our context. Now let's look at our figurative and literal stage. The theater at Astor Place is in a wealthy neighborhood. Broadway should be familiar to everybody else. It is within shouting distance of the Bowery, which is working class. The Bowery Theater is where Forrest made his stage debut, and it's where neighborhood street gangs known as Bahoys, B apostrophe H O Y S, went to while out. They would throw peanuts. They would they would holler along with the works of Shakespeare, or they would climb on stage and try to mess with the actors, the Astor Place Theater was the polar opposite. Velvet seats. You got to show up with white gloves. Monocles not required, but encouraged. Totally. <laughs> and, uh, and basically, it was considered scandalous if someone showed up to the Astor Place Theater not in an expensive carriage. So, of course, that's where McReady goes. That's right. And, you know, I mentioned at the top of the show the idea of kind of that the newish working class, um, the Bowery boys and things like that. They were they were there was a gang, but they also were just kind of a group of, you know, street toughs that kind of hung around the Bowery neighborhood. So you definitely had it wasn't very far from where the uh, Astor theater was. So there was, you know, it was easy for them to kind of like get wind that there that there was going to be this event and decide they were going to, you know, not co-opt it exactly, but a bit of a party crashing situation. So um, when McCready gets this kind of engagement at the Astor Place Theater in 1849 in the spring, this would be his third tour of the United States. Uh, it was essentially fighting words, um, you know, as far as the Bowery boys and that kind of echelon of society were concerned. So on May 7th, 1849, McCready was about to hit the stage uh, as Macbeth, 
in the, in the, the Scottish play, is what they call it. And uh, this that's when these working class New York folks who had bought tickets started filing into the Astor Opera House, uh, which is which is the official name of the place. And it was actually, if I'm not mistaken, they had previously only done opera and then they started to kind of diversify a little bit because i think they wanted to i don't know like broaden the reach i guess and and make more money um that's just the way it looks um from my perspective so it started to get a little rough feeling and you started to see you know a lot of these uh folks that were more used to the white glove and, and monocle uh situation were started to see this other contingent kind of filing in and it it, it sort of gave them a little bit of pause uh mccready went on stage started to deliver the first of his lines and was immediately boo! jeered booed boo! hissed at and there were things like three groans for the English bulldog. Huzzah for native talent. They wouldn't have said it in an English accent. They weren't English at all. I don't know why I said that. It was Maybe fun to say it that mocking. way. Maybe they it were could, mocking. Maybe they were mocking. There you go. Let's assume that's the case. Huzzah for the native talent. Exactly. I love huzzah. Huzzah is, is universal. You don't have to be British or American to use huzzah. Um and things just got worse from there. Apparently, it got so noisy that the uh, the performers had to kind of continue the performance in pantomime because you couldn't even hear uh, the, the dialogue. And yeah. then things escalated from there in terms of like things getting chucked on stage, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm most my favorite part of this story is the same crowd cheered when McDuff first enters the story. He's, as, as you recall, Shakespeare fans, he's the character who goes on to kill Macbeth. Spoilers. So that's how profoundly they hated McReady. And the stage wasn't just pelted with uh, playbills or peanuts. People had brought things to throw at him. Eggs, bottles, pennies, rotten fruit. Yes, that really used to happen. People would throw rotten fruit at actors. And eventually... They had to end the performance before the play itself was done. At the same time, across town, Forrest, by the way, is doing his own performance of Macbeth to a packed house of his own supporters. And this made McReady livid in a very, you know, buttoned up British way. He said, I'm going to cancel my tour. I'm leaving this godforsaken country for good. Mm-hmm. And it took Uh, some of New York's most highly regarded elites begging him for him to, you know, reluctantly change his mind. Uh, Like the society folks, the literary giants. And so they said, okay, we're going to do another performance. We're going to call it a premiere. We're going to do it three days later. And that's where they messed up. Because this fellow ridiculous historians gave the authorities time to prepare but it also gave the uh, it, it also gave those mutual fan clubs time to prepare. Unless we need to really not uh, bury the lead here. This was more than just like drunken heckling. This, like we said, this represented serious tensions between the the upper and and lower and middle classes, uh, and also the pro British versus staunchly anti anything foreign sentiments. So, I mean, this was serious business. This represented something very real, even if it was just kind of like you know it seems a little frivolous talking about it now. I was like, wow, it was just a, like 
a freaking play. It's basically just like getting bent out of shape about like, you know, a movie or something, which not to say people don't do that, but, that, but certainly not to this degree. Um, there was a militia assembled. A 350-person militia was assembled, and it was stationed at Washington Square Park on the ready, right, Ben? Um, and they were kind of expecting that there was going to be some trouble. And that was assembled by the city's mayor, who was a, a Whig. That's a holdover from British governing, right? Yeah, the Whig party, which is no longer active now, was uh, pretty active in the 1800s. They were an oppositional party. They rose to oppose President Andrew Jackson. So they their main constituents or their, their main components were former members of the Democratic Party, the Anti-Masonic Party, which is a good thing for an episode later, and the National Republican Party. Got it. So would they have been more pro-British or more pro, you know, British sentiment? Or is this not even something that is worth considering in this uh, situation? They, you know, it's it's almost an episode of its own. They ultimately self-destructed over the question of whether or not slavery should be expanded to the territories in the country mm. at the time. So okay. there, there were a lot of what we would call haves in the Whig party. Okay, so this would have largely this 350-man militia, we could probably consider them kind of in the McCready camp. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They're there to, they're to oppose the unwashed masses and their hooliganry, right? Yeah. Oh, also, uh, Abraham Lincoln was a leader of the Whig Party in Illinois once upon a time. So, not, you know, I, I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush there. But yes, the 350 man strong militia was organized to stop any potential. Uh, shenanigans on the part of forest supporters. So we fast forward May 10th, 1849, the second performance still called a premiere for marketing purposes. That's right. That's right. And let, let's also point out, we, we may have glossed over this. This was essentially the, the rich contingent saying, how dare you treat our uh, beloved McCready in this way, you absolute trash human beings. We are going to be completely tone deaf about what this feud represents. And we just think he deserves a mulligan because you were so, you know, uh, dastardly to him with your rudeness and your mm. pelting of eggs and all of that. They probably should have left well enough alone, Ben, mm. not realizing this was actually the match that could ignite an actual powder keg. Well, not an actual literal powder keg a figurative powder keg or an actual riot or conflict mm. in the streets. But they were more concerned about coming off uh, as as uh, refined to this this gentleman and making sure that he would return to regale them with, with, with his, uh, you know, handkerchief-waving performances in future engagements. Yeah, that's the thing. They, they were, there was a lot of let us subjugate the lower class, teach them a lesson, kind of reasoning behind their activities. I could just see, you know, I, I can see the members of high society shaking their hands at, in, at the ceiling of their chandelier and going, the uncouthery of it all, the sheer uncouthery. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Things got shady so quickly. 200 officers uh, from the police force were inside the theater. 75 more were outside, but the crowd 
easily outnumbered them. We're talking about more than 10,000 people and people in the crowd learned of an unethical trick. The McCready contingent had pulled in advance of the play. You see, they intentionally oversold the tickets for the show. And this gave the ushers the opportunity to, uh, as the Smithsonian mental floss phrase it, weed out the riffraff and still have a sold-out premiere. So they, they, they did this, by the way, because McReady's agents sold tickets that had a special identifying mark that said to the ushers, these are the people we actually want in the theater. So the forest supporters who managed to get in in the first place found themselves cherry-picked and arrested during the first act of the play, and the crowd of McReady fans were loudly cheering as they saw these people get dragged off. And then that's when, eventually, the prisoners set their holding cell on fire. One man yelling, I paid for a ticket and they wouldn't let me in because I hadn't kid gloves and a white vest. Damn them. <laughs> kid gloves? Is that where that expression comes from? Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, yeah. Goat, goat skin. Yeah, oh, got it. Kid, I always assumed handling things with kid gloves meant like, like you know, having to deal with a small child. I was always confused. With, what, are these gloves for children? Like, I'm confused. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Kid gloves, merzy dotes and dozy dotes and all that stuff. Uh, kids isn't even in that rhyme. What am I talking about? I just Google it. It's it's a it's a funny rhyme about types of goats or something. Um, but yeah, it's true. People started throwing bricks, uh, or as they referred to them in those days, paving stones. Um, and it was, you know, absolute bedlam. Windows were being broken. Uh, the opera house really started to look like that scene in Les Mis, you know, with the barricade in the middle of the street and like, you know, burning refuse piled up in, in like a weird pyramid. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's uh, absolutely uh, a, a, a scene, you know, like something out of a, out of a war movie inside an opera house. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. 
With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So now the Opera House is starting to look like it is under siege, like there's some sort of army invading it. Police and the state militia try to keep the crowds away from the theater. One general, William Hall, told the mayor straight up, look, it's time to open fire on these people or it's time to pull back because I am not going to let my guys get stoned to death while they're carrying guns. So just give us the order, Mayor. (laughs) It's time to ship or get off the pot. So this is where a man in the crowd shouts, fire it, burn that damned den of the aristocracy. (laughs) Oh, and then the continuation of this quote is priceless. You danced fire, you sons of... You darnst! What does that mean? That's that's the anonymous voice that rose above the crowd. Oh, working men! Shall Americans or English rule? Uh, And then, yeah, the the soldiers apparently did darnst, and they uh, and they and they fired. Yeah, I was interested in this because in the Stephen King novel, uh, The Shining, without spoiling it. There is a scene where one character, in an exasperated tone, is yelling out, "You doesn't." You doesn't like you dare not. Mm, I don't know that one, Ben. So it's it's a it's an outdated kind of uh, archaic expression now. But I I was looking into you doesn't. Does that mean you dare not fire? You dare, like were they daring the soldiers to fire? You dare you dare not fire? Yeah, you dare not. I think maybe Darzant is, is dare not, perhaps. I don't yeah. know. It's 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 hard to say. We can only uh, we can only make our best guess. But again, they did open fire. The soldiers volleyed some shots over the crowd's heads. They were meant more to be warning shots uh, to kind of get them to simmer down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it didn't really have the desired effect. Um, and people kept you know hurling these paving stones and all of that. And that's when the soldiers decided to take it to the next level and they set their sights and they actually fired into the crowd yep and the crowd continued surging forward it was only until this militia threatened to use cannon fire uh, that the crowds dispersed and once everything had settled relatively speaking there were 18 people dead on the street murdered Uh, by this militia, and there were dozens more people who were injured, not all of them involved in the riots. Some people probably just like walking to the deli and getting caught up in this cacophony, this cavalcade of chaos. More than 100 rioters were arrested. And we have an account we found uh, reprinted in the Washington Post from 1849 that says, The scene which followed beggars all description. The wounded, the dying, and the dead were scattered in every direction. There were groans of agony, 
cries for help, and oaths of vengeance. Some of the dead and wounded were laid out upon the billiards table of Vauxhall Saloon. A large crowd gathered around, and speeches were made by excited orators. And it goes on to list the number of people killed, injured, and arrested. But it also, and this is interesting, it prints their occupations and background information about them. They're people mm-hmm. like people who work at grocery stores, carpenters, waiters, stuff like that. Not to take it in too contemporary a political direction, but as we know, the problem with riots and, and looting and all of that is people do get caught in the crossfire. And oftentimes people that are there with the best of intentions that are playing by the rules get lumped in with the quote unquote bad actors, right? And then, uh, and if, if, if lethal force is involved, uh, that's a whole nother ball game because then everyone kind of gets swept up into the uh, melee and it's, uh, it's a nasty scene. Um, there was a bystander by the name of Bridget Fagan, who was 30 years old, shot in the leg while walking with her husband just along the Bowery. Uh, or a gentleman named George Gedney, 34, who was a Wall Street stockbroker who was shot right through the head while watching all of this stuff unfold uh, from in front of uh, one of the uh, very posh mansions in that in that part of the city. Um, so even people that weren't even there, like you said, had nothing to do with it, got caught up in, in all of this violence. And then you have to, the thing about riots too, is, is that there's got to be a narrative and there's always this kind of rush to blame somebody or figure out, you know, who, who the one person or contingent that, you know, actually was the cause of said violence was when usually it's a combination of, of multiple parties, not to mention the massive overcorrection by the uh, city's, um, I would say, not technically legal police uh, supplement, you know, with these militia people who are going to be much more trigger happy than maybe trained officers. I don't know. I don't even know if that's true or not, but uh, it certainly feels like it was a quite an overreaction. And it was Irish immigrants that were blamed. Uh, the Irish always get blamed, it seems like, in a lot of these situations. Uh, but the the true evidence pointed to anti-immigrant forces um, much more than actual, you know, immigrants themselves. Yeah, so very much in line with that Gangs of New York kind of dichotomy that you mentioned at the top there, Noel. Uh, But what about the most controversial British actor in New York City? (laughs) McReady hightailed it out first through a back exit of the theater, and then he hightailed it to his posh hotel. And then, because he was worried that the mob would lay siege to his hotel and then kill him, he hightailed it from New York entirely. In a few days, he was in Boston. But what about the aftermath here? Oh, what about it indeed? And real quickly, just to backtrack, I I, I made a, well, it was kind of just an off-the-cuff assertion at the top that this was during the time period of the Gangs of New York, and then I realized I hadn't confirmed that, so I sort of walked that back. But no, the Gangs of New York period, with all of those huge gang wars, was only a, a very brief period, and it was from 1834 to 1844, and this is in 1849, so this really is like right part and parcel with that whole vibe in the city. Right, but that that's why I said that I, I thought your comparison was spot on because we still see the anti-Irish uh, sentiments. Yes. And the- Absolutely. For some reason, I just thought maybe it would have been farther removed, but it really was like right on the heels of that. So that stuff would have just absolutely still been in the air. So you're, to your point, that's absolutely right. 
the news of the day was, uh, you know, was very consciously oriented toward heaping opprobrium upon that Irish American population. We're not in any way diminishing Mm-mm. that, Mm-mm. Uh, but they were opportunists for sure. The media, I mean, not the, not, yeah, not the no, Irish the, population in New York. No question about it. They absolutely had their own agendas and access to grind. And we actually have a uh, kind of a recollection from Major General Charles Stanford, who uh, led that New York militia um, of, of the events that took place. And this is what he said. I have never seen a mob so violent as the one on that evening. I never before had occasion to give the order to fire. And then, you know, after the riot, there were bodies thrown in the streets. I mean, it really was like something out of uh, a war movie, Um, only it was much more of like a civil war kind of situation. It really, truly was a mini civil war between the haves and and the have-nots all over which version of Macbeth they liked the best, but representing something much larger. Yeah, that's how it started. Uh, One thing that people don't often talk about when they talk about the story is the second riot that almost occurred with people marching like an army in lower Manhattan. That riot was quelled. uh, And a few days after the first riot, a jury relieved the police and militia of any and all responsibility for the shootings, saying that they were justified. Five more people died of their wounds in the days after. So the total uh, the total fatalities of this riot were 23 people dead, but maybe as many as 31. And people who were seen as instigators of the riots were up for trial as well. Many were convicted, fined, and jailed, including that author, Ned Buntline, who was one of the people shouting in the crowd. He wasn't the guy who was like, you darsn't, but he was, he was hanging out with those folks. Forrest, continued uh continued performing after this they both continued performing after this and, and this is I, I don't know what to think about this one Noel but he eventually had this dramatic falling out and divorce from his English wife and went on to perform regularly until he passed away suddenly in 1872 at the age of 66. And, you know, Astor Place, this area and, and, and the theater uh, that, that, you know, it was centered around, um, already had a reputation as being kind of a hot spot for the, the wealthy and powerful and the kind of like sh- shining uh, tower on the hill, you know, where the, uh, the, the elite were able to live and, and, and work and play. And it just kind of continued to deepen those resentments, right? Um, Especially after, you know, loss of life that resulted. It was about more than just uh, Shakespeare and which uh, which actor you liked the best. It really was kind of a, almost like a French Revolution type experience, like almost like a mini revolution. Um, And it was, it did go down in history as one of the most uh, uh, violent riots in the city's history until the 1863 draft riot um, that took place during the Civil War. So it's, you know, interchangeably referred to as the Shakespeare riot or the Astor Place riot. 
And this had uh, immediate impacts that resonated not just in New York City, but around the country. Um, uh, New York City police were armed uh, at this point, or I guess they hadn't been. And then municipal constables around the country were also armed. Um, and the word spread through the relatively new invention that was the telegraph. And this is when you start to see a little bit more of a, almost the earliest days of the militarization of the police. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea of like a police state or something, it's pretty fascinating. Uh, you know, up until that point, a lot of the beat cops would just be walking around with like nightsticks, for example. And now they were carrying heavy firepower and there was more, uh, heavy, uh, weaponry, um, given to police d- departments and things like armored vehicles and stuff and such. Yeah. That's why you'll see authors such as, uh, Jonathan Richards writing for Santa Fe, New Mexican saying that this sets a precedent for the path of increased militarization and, uh, in, in, in arguing that you can trace it back there. I, I don't think the answer is as clear cut, but there's definitely something to the argument. Uh, this also marked the what people call the beginning of the end for Shakespeare as popular entertainment in the U.S. Because now the secret that everybody knew but no one really talked about uh, of alienation between the various American classes was front and center, like someone doing a monologue in Shakespeare. It was... <laughs> It was right there for all to see, and it had a spotlight upon it, perhaps for the first time. So the culture of the country shifted, and Shakespeare, for good or ill, started to become regarded as more of a a highbrow form of entertainment. And I, I do want to take this moment to point out that Shakespeare is still very accessible and super enjoyable if you get the chance to see a a solid production of it on stage. Uh, The shows are a lot of fun. They're worth the price of a ticket. And perhaps most importantly, you don't have to riot to have a riotous good time. Well said, Ben. Well said. Way to bring it full circle so we can uh, wrap this one up for today. Uh, huge thanks to super producer Casey Pregum here in spirit today, uh, along with Christopher Hasiois. They're kind of hovering above us in the clouds, looking down on us like good ghost parents. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that as always. Yeah. And of course, huge thanks to the Quister, also known as Jonathan Strickland, who uh, was going to be a little bit a little bit dumpling steamed to know that uh, we we didn't have him on a Shakespeare episode, but we'll make it up to him. And of course, big, big thanks to Gabe Luzier or Gabe Luzier, however you wish to pronounce it, uh, for some awesome research alley-oops with this one. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme, Eve's Jeff Coates. Check out her show, um, This Day in History Class, uh, along with some amazing new things that she's got in the in the works that uh, I can't talk about quite yet, but uh, be on the lookout. Big things coming from Eve's. And man, Ben, thanks to you for joining me in this uh, Shakespeare riot and throwing back a bottle of good tidings uh, and great joy. And Noel, thanks for thanks for shotgunning with me on this one without either of us actually firing a shotgun, which apparently <laughs> sets the bar of podcasting a little bit higher than the bar of mid-1800 Shakespeare performances. Uh, I don't know if there's an Emmy for that uh, or a, a Webby, uh, but, you know, you can just... 
you can just reward us by uh, hanging out with us on the internet, where we are Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, where Ridiculous History or some derivation thereof. Uh, but of course, the best place to find us and more importantly, your fellow listeners is to join Ridiculous Historians, our Facebook page. Yes, all you have to do is name one or both or anybody part of the Ridiculous History mythos, uh, and you'll be in, and lots of good times to be had there. Uh, you can also check out me and Ben as individual human beings on the internet. I am at HowNowNoelBrown on Instagram. I am at Ben Bolin, HSW on Twitter, and I am at Ben Bolin on Instagram, where I go through various weird uh, visual <laughs> phases. Like right now, I live with a life-size plastic skeleton, because that's that's where I am in the age of pandemic. Hey, we're all somewhere doing our best every day. Please join us for the next episode of Ridiculous History, where... Uh, Super producer Casey Pegram will return from his uh, his sick leave, and and hopefully we'll make him proud. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.